How was your week going? How was the farm? Good. Um, I went with, um, uh, cleaned up after the horses for the first time yesterday. Um, it's just like, nice. Are you to getting, is that a promotion? With other animals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, they're just short staffed. Um, yeah, they're short staffed. So I was actually in there with the owner. Um, but it was just nice. Yeah. To be around the, the horses. Um, she needed someone to go in with the cows, but I, I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> they're like 2000 pounds and also the, the manure is really heavy. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so today um, I kind of want to get into the the nitty gritty things that people really want to talk about, but we're all a little bit too shy to talk about. Um, last week I announced on my Instagram that I got appointed to a um, advisory committee for the state, and that's very very exciting. And I think this ties in nicely to that because there's you know. Um, I don't know how you can get away from talking about money, right? So today we want to talk about money and talk about the numbers, you know, how does money, um, how do you account for money in your business? How do you think about money? Um, a little bit about my background. So I started out in consumer protection law. Oh my God. Okay. The animals are going crazy. So I started out in consumer protection law when I graduated law school and I was doing that during my internships in law school. And um, my background is in representing consumers. Um, consumers dealing with unsecured debt and some secured debt um, and you know, enforcing their rights for fair debt collection practices um, as well as their rights under the Truth and Lending Act and um, others the Fair Credit Reporting Act and everything. Um, now, because of my experience in, in debt collection and litigating those type of cases, I became very good at understanding contracts, like reading through all kinds of contracts, understanding how contracts are actually enforced in court and how they're enforced in arbitration and settlement, um, like mediation, um, how that all plays out. And I think that's one of the key things that makes my experience so um, informative of like the work that I was doing for small business owners, because I know what works and what doesn't actually work um, and how to craft contracts that are really solid because I've been on the other side of that. And I've, I've litigated really loose contracts or contracts that seemed like they were solid and just were not bulletproof. Um, so my background being in money as it is, um, I'm kind of obsessed with it. I'm kind of obsessed with how do you um, stay out of debt and how do you build wealth? I don't mean just like a nice nest egg or being comfortable. I mean, wealth, generational wealth that you can pass on um, and, and how your legacy can kind of like move down so that it can be built upon. Um, Deanna, do you want to talk a little bit about your background, um, with like how maybe money has impacted you and your life experiences, whether that's through work or through anything like home ownership? I know you have, um, a few mm -hmm. homes and properties and, you know, how does money come into play in your everyday? Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm really glad, um, you know, years ago I, um, was able to save up and, you know, put a, a down payment on a small condo, um, nothing fancy. Um, and, you know, I kind of, I think at that point I was, I wasn't really thinking much about the future and how this could really be like an investment. Um, I was just happy, you know, to have my own place and live there. But, um, you know, now a few, a few years later, um, you know, I started renting that place out. My husband and I were able to buy a new home. Um, and then eventually, like, we were able to, especially, you know, when all the housing prices went crazy during COVID, we were able to refinance that condo and take on, you know, with a cash out, <laughs> which was, I mean, like, really helpful because we already I had a lot of equity in that um, condo. So, you know, we were able to now use the equity that we took out of there 
to purchase a third property. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, that's been incredible. Um, you know, just looking back, I'm like, wow, I'm so glad, you know, <laughs> that when I was younger that I made the, de the decision to buy that place. Um, what else? What year um, was that when you bought your condo? Do you remember what year? 2015. Oh, okay. Yeah. So not super long time ago, but. No, yeah, but that were... was around the time that like, because ever since 2008, mm -hmm. um, after the great recession, um, the market crashed and it's never really been the same since. And, you know, for all the young folks listening out there before 2008, you could actually earn interest in your bank accounts. Like there was, you know, you would put your money in a bank account and over time, every month you would get a little bit more money based on what you have in your bank account because of interest. Um, from 2008 until just last month or two, very recently, um, interest rates have been near zero on savings accounts. So we're still really feeling the after effects from the great recession. 2015 was around the time things be started becoming a little bit more stable. Um, the the rates and the um, values of homes that tanked from, you know, after 2008 started like leveling out. Yeah. And so that was a, a really good time to invest because rates were probably really good then too. Um, and then you mentioned the word equity. For anyone who doesn't know equity, um, the way that you determine equity, it's the fair market value of your home minus any encumbrances on it. So minus any like remaining mortgage or any liens that are on the property. So after having the condo from 2015 until 2023 um, and you've paid down you know, a lot of the mortgage on the condo, that's, that's how you increase your equity because she's yeah. reducing the amount of, of mortgage and the fair market value is increasing because the market is really good. Yeah. So, yeah. And we were even able to get an even lower interest rate when we refinance. Yeah. yeah so it was, it was sweet. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I think even like the, you know, when I purchased the condo, like, like you were saying about what happened in 2008, um, what I paid for it, if you look back to like pre-2008, it was going for about the same amount of money. Mm, that's really yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. So you leveled out and you mentioned refinancing again. Um, I think this is, it's really important to um, be open about what we know and what we don't know. And um, if you don't know, refinancing is getting your home evaluated again. And what you're doing is you're entering into a new contract at a different market rate. So you're, maybe you had um, a 30 year fixed mortgage or whatever with your lender. I do. My interest rates were mm -hmm. um, very high because of the stupid pandemic. Um, mine is just under 6%, which is crazy high, although it's gotten crazier. Yeah. Um, and so it's, I know it's a really high interest rate, but I also know that that's not the norm. Mm -hmm. And so in the future, when the rates go back down, because I know it will go back down one day, I can refinance my mortgage, which means enter into a new contract with a new servicer who will pay off my mortgage to the one that I currently owe right now. So that person, you know, that entity will be satisfied and they're going to say, let me buy your debt. You just pay me instead at this different rate at a lower rate. So then I benefit because now I pay less money. The, the interest rate is much lower and they benefit because now they're getting money from me based on the interest that I'm paying them. Yeah. yeah. So one thing to... So one thing to really make sure you need to understand about refinancing is that because it's a new contract, all of the terms will apply. So if you had a 30-year fixed mortgage and you're entering into a refinancing agreement with another mortgage company that's 30 years, you're starting over at that time again, at the beginning, year one of 30. So you want to think about that repayment period and if that stretches it out or not. Um, that could be advantageous. You just want to make sure that you think about that. Yep. Yeah. And there are um, still like closing costs and additional fees that you have to pay um, when yeah. you do re refinance. So you have to like really see if it makes sense for you. Yeah. Um, and then something else I did actually before that. Um, so just a few years after I purchased the condo, um, I think maybe around probably like 2018, 2019, I think 2019, um, 
because um, the home prices were going up, like the fair market value, um, and because we had um, more equity, I was also able to like get the home reappraised hmm. and then um, drop the mortgage insurance. So oh, that yes. was really helpful as well, because I didn't, I had a really small down payment, I mm -hmm. think maybe like 6% or something. Um, it was really low mm -hmm. when I bought the condo, so I had mortgage insurance. So it was, yeah. it was really nice when that dropped off. Yeah, it is. That's something that we took into account. So another ramification of 2008 and subprime mortgages is that um, primary mortgage insurance, your PMI, mm -hmm. is required for purchases of homes where you pay less than 20% of the of the total purchase price for your down payment. If you pay 20% or more, then you don't have to um, buy primary mortgage insurance. Um, however, once the value, the equity in your home is equivalent to, I think it's that 20%, um, you can drop the PMI. And so that reduces your monthly payments because you're no longer paying for primary mortgage insurance. So that was another, you know, that was another consideration for when we bought our house, because I'm like, first of all, never in a million years did I think that I could save up 20% of what the lowest home value prices in Alameda would be, which is mm -hmm. the, the lowest is like a million. Okay. Um, and I was just kind of morally against that. I'm like, if I save up 200,000, <laughs> forget it. I'm not putting, I'm not spending it all in one go. Um, yeah, I did. I ended <laughs> up doing that and it sucked, but you know, I think when I talked to my mortgage servicer about this, I'm like, how much would the payments be with PMI um, and putting a little less down versus putting a lot more down up front and not having to pay primary mortgage insurance? And my broker was able to um, share that with us and kind of give us a better estimate of things. And it was definitely better for us to just put down the 20% and not pay for mm -hmm. primary mortgage insurance. Yeah. So. But if you are in the boat where you um, don't have the 20% down and it seems like it's steep up front, you know, with property taxes and everything like that, um, one, work with a mortgager who can run your numbers and your financials to give you a really accurate estimate of what you will pay monthly, including the property taxes. Mm -hmm. um, and then with that consideration, know that you can, the payments will go down even if you don't refinance once you hit that equity point, that 20% equity point, and you can drop the um, primary mortgage insurance. Yeah. Yeah. I think also something that was like, I think is really important um, is to not make assumptions because I, yes. I was like the queen of making assumptions. And um, like we talked about refinancing, like when everyone was refinancing during like you know, 2020, 2021. Um, and I was just like, well, it's an investment property. There's no way that, um, we're going to be able to get a lower interest rate than when I purchased it as a primary, um, a residence. I just kept saying that I hadn't, I didn't know. I just kept saying that. So we, you know, we ended up refinancing, but if we had done it a year earlier, yeah, we would have the, gotten a way better rate. Yeah. It, it wasn't a huge insane. difference between the primary residence and investment property. It wasn't yeah. as significant as I, I thought. Um, 2020 was such a, um, a staggering year. It's not a normal year. That was the year that of like so many exceptions. And I think that if you were, you know, as somebody who graduated um, undergrad in 2008, coming into the workforce right at the Great Recession, um, I've always missed the wave for all of the good things. And I feel like the generation ahead of me has always hit that like peak of like being able to take advantage of the worst possible scenarios <laughs> um because I have a cousin who's a little bit older than me and she's like riding the way yeah <laughs> but yeah that that time in 2020 those refinancing rates were so low because the banks were so desperate for for business um that holy cow I don't think you'll ever see rates like that again I mean knock on wood that we don't have another crazy epidemic but yeah you know, that that's kind of like one of those once in a lifetime things. Yeah. I, and I actually, I attended um, a presentation um, by uh, a lender on Friday and it was super like informational. Um, just, I, I learned a lot um, just like 
you know, there's so many options for people like for first time home buyers mm-hmm. that most yeah. people don't know about. Um, so definitely like if you are thinking to buy something, like find a lender who's like really gonna like educate you, find out like, you know, like um just really like your whole situation who can even tell you, okay, like you're not in a good place now, but do X, Y, and Z. And then like kind of just, you know, like be there with you the next like few months, few years, who's gonna mm-hmm. really like um get you in the right direction so you can buy a home. And this is, um, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, Sorry, oh no, I was just <laughs> going to say, um, there's just like, yeah, so many, there's just so many things they can do, like so many um, different types of mortgages or um, like strategies. Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't know there's like all these strategies to like get you into a home or um, there was recently like, I like forget how much I think like $3 million or maybe more than that. Um, like a, I think a federal thing where you could, um, basically, um, they would give you like a down payment, but, um, so yeah, maybe I get your thoughts on this, um, like programs where first time home buyers could basically like not even have to put down, um, a down payment or put down like a very low amount, but the kind of the catch is, um, with the equity in your home, they get a percent. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that you have to be low income to qualify for that. And essentially, um, cause like San Francisco has its own thing, but California has a thing as well, where it's to encourage like equity or equity amongst, um, normally disadvantaged groups. So first time homeowners who don't have generational wealth and don't have anything that they can easily build upon have access to it. Um, that's the intent, right? Mm-hmm. And so with some of the, the state programs and some of the federal programs, like Cal Hafa is one of them. Um, that was one that I was looking at personally. I'm like, I don't think, I assume that we wouldn't qualify for Cal Hafa because we have pretty high incomes. And um, the reason I was interested in one of the Cal Hafa loans is because they, with that loan, they pay your closing cost, which is huge. Mm-hmm. huge, huge, you know, the, the 20% down does not include your closing costs. And you're looking at about five to 8% in, in closing costs in addition to what you're dropping. Mm-hmm. So that was something that was very interesting to me. And that's actually how I found my broker who I really loved working with. This is free plug, Jason Mata at American Pacific Mortgage. Um, he was amazing, like it, very easy to work with very fast. Um, just gave him all of our financial information and he ran his numbers in his little program and showed us what the different options were and what our monthly payments would be. And, um, for us, that was very important because like Jeff has such a hard time with like, uh, transitions and new things. And I know that buying a home was something that he was kind of like stressing out about. And once you can see the numbers, of what this person's showing him, like, he was like, okay, I, I get it. Like, I think that we can do this. Um, So, you know, a couple of tips here. You shouldn't have to pay anyone to run your numbers. Okay. Like they're getting business from you when they close on the deal. Um, It's free to have your information run. Um, I worked with Jason. He is based out of Sacramento. Our home is in Alameda. I loved him. I, you can work with him anywhere. And actually, um, when we were closing, that was like when interest rates were peaking and rising. And when like, you know, we, we already like secured the deal and I'm like, can you hurry up and get us the loan and the paperwork? Because interest rates are going crazy right now. Like, please lock it in. He was on his honeymoon in Europe. We were on vacation Yosemite and we, you know, the three parties, my, my real estate agent, my broker and my husband and I are just like scrambling and trying to sign paperwork on like our little phones and everything. Um, But he was wonderful to work with because he never made me feel like I'm putting him out. He understood that the market was going apeshit crazy and never complained about having to work on his honeymoon. He was awesome. Um, Yeah. So I think, you know, we kind of diverged all the way from the very (laughs) beginning. (laughs) Because money is so ubiquitous. It affects every part of our lives and we don't talk about it. We don't talk about the things that are really, really important. And um, I I think that's silly because you can end up losing so much money 
by being by being super taboo on the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I see daily at work is people who've been scammed or um, had their identity stolen and they're ashamed to admit it or they're ashamed to get help because they're so embarrassed by it. And that is horrible because number one, you're the victim, okay? You're not stupid. It was intent, you were intended to be taken advantage of. Um, And number two, being embarrassed can cause you to lose time, which is not on your side when you are trying to deal with identity theft issues or scam issues to get your money back. Time is really, really important. Um, You don't have a lot of it to get your money back if you've been scammed. So, you know, all of that is to say that we're going to talk about money today. And um, I hope that you guys learn a lot from this episode um, and give us feedback about, you know, your money questions, because this is my expertise too. Um, So right off the bat, we were talking about consumer loans. Like what we're talking about right now is like the house that I live in. I'm using it for my personal family use. Okay. Um, That is called a consumer loan. Now, a business loan is not for the purposes of personal family household use um, by definition. So a business loan is anything that is for the furtherance of your business. Um, Let's say you have a business credit card. You've got a business credit card and maybe it's not even like designated as a business credit card. Like it doesn't say uh, American Express business but maybe you have just a regular old Chase Freedom credit card that you in your mind say, I'm using this only for business, okay? If it's a consumer card to begin with, it's you're gonna have the same consumer protections that you would. If you opened a business credit card, like maybe you got a business Costco account, but you're using some of the purchases on there are for your personal household use, those purchases are going to be subject to consumer protection laws. So the the purchases itself, not the card, is really what determines um, what it's going to be, what kind of protections it'll have. Um, If you're wondering why that's important, it's because as a consumer, you have a lot of protections. You have a lot of rights. You have rights for how um, the information that you get at the outset when you open the account, Um, you need to be, you know, told all of the interest rates and you know, there's a whole slew of information that you're supposed to get at the outset of the contract that if you don't get that information or if any of, the, of it is incorrect, um, you might have a claim for statutory damages, okay? Um, or you might be able to rescind the contract, meaning undo the contract. Um, you also have rights with how they're able to do like collection practices with you. Business loans and business debt do not enjoy any of those protections or rights. And it's really messed up because post-2008, lenders, banks started requiring people to personally sign for their business debt. So if your business goes bankrupt, you are still personally liable for it. And that kind of defeats the whole purpose of having an entity, Mm -hmm. right? So- that's why I want to make that distinction about consumer versus business money and debt. Um, do you want to add anything to, to that, Deanna? I guess just, I think, I don't know, I guess this is a positive is that um, when you do have like a business credit card, as long as you are um, making payments, um, it doesn't show up on your personal credit report. Right. But however, um, if you stop making payments and you know you default on it, it will show up on your personal credit card. I mean, your personal um, credit, credit report. report. <laughs> yeah. I think it also depends too on um, your entity type, doesn't it? Um, I'm just a, a sole proprietor and my business card doesn't show up on my think, personal credit report. I think that's like a double-edged sword. It's It could be good, it could be bad because like mm-hmm. I never think of credit reports are like neutral to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're like meant to be this neutral thing. It's like a scoreboard basically. And, um, having more accounts on there can actually be a positive because if you have a very like high credit ratio to debt ratio, that would improve your credit score. Yeah. And so if you're paying your business, uh, your business credit cards and you're a sole proprietor, you're paying it on time, 
that could be a plus in your um, in your credit score itself because you know it increases the amount of credit that you have available to you, and it could potentially increase the length of time that you've had a credit history. So, you know, consider that. Yeah. And if you do want to add that, I think you can contact the credit reporting agency and ask them to add that or add, contact your sorry, contact your what's it called um, car, company, the credit card company. And you can ask them to put it on there. They're what's called a furnisher in the um, credit reporting world. Um, okay. Yeah, interesting. Credit is another huge topic that I deal with on the daily. So if anyone's interested in that, I'm happy to talk about that too. Um, so let's talk about the really thing, the thing that everybody wants to know, what's, you know, the elephant in the room is how do you pay yourself? How much do you pay yourself? How much are you charging for your services? You know, really understanding what your value is. Um, how do you calculate your profits? You know, are you calculating free expenses or are you doing it after expenses, like all your net expenses? And I think that I think that the people who tend to talk about it um, and, and be braggy, I'm going to say braggy, because there are people who are very um, transparent for the purposes of being transparent and not for like clout or anything, but there are people who will want to like sell you a course or sell you their whatever. And they do that by saying, here's how I made my six figure salary. Here's my bank account, blah, 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 you know? It is not hard to manipulate your bank account to make it look like you make a certain amount of money before expenses go out. Yeah. So just be aware of that. Um, I guess, yeah, another thing is um, about like managing contractors. Yeah. So you yeah. want to think about, you know, your overhead and and how that comes into play. So let's say that you have... Um, if you are a sole proprietor, many times sole proprietors, and by sole proprietor, I mean that you have not formed um, a formal business entity separate from yourself. So we talked about that in our last LLC episode and a couple of other ones previously. So check back in the archives. But um, if you're a sole proprietor, you are probably paying yourself the net of whatever is left over at the end of the every two weeks or every month. Right. So after you've paid for your contractors, your that would be like your second shooters or assistants. After you've paid for maybe the the albums that your clients have purchased, um, your monthly Adobe subscription, your any other subscriptions, um, after you've paid the bills, you then pocket the rest. Right. Um, alternatively, as you get you gain more business and you start to save more money than you're making, which is the goal, right? You can start to pay yourself a salary or a dividend. Um, if you are a an LLC and you're the owner of the LLC, you can also employ yourself. You can pay yourself a salary and that would come out of the um, the bottom line for the LLC. And then anything that's left over would then be dispersed to the members if that's what your operating agreement says. But you can ensure that you pay your salary first and deduct that from your LLC's um, accounting as an expense. Um, so you want to calculate, you know, all of the things that you're responsible for paying first, of course, and then be really honest about what your assessment is, like how much are you paying yourself um, and then based on that, I would look at what your hourly rate is. So, you know, we've talked before about keeping track of your time. If you want to be compensated for work that you've done, um, let's say that a client cancels the contract and you've already started working on it, but you maybe charge like a lump sum, right? Like you're asking them to pay uh, like a package price. And so it's not at the end of the wedding. How do you figure out how much they owe you? You have to keep track of your hours and you have to, you know, identify what your hourly rate is. Um, so you should be keeping track of your hours anyway. And then just break that down by what your profit is and see how much you're actually making. So 
So let's say you start there, right? Like let's just do a business, a financial health, you know, refresh right now. Um, you want to look at where you are. So you would um, look at what your income is, subtract all of your expenses, your cost of goods, your overhead, your taxes, your contractors, any uh, equipment or maintenance that you have to do. Take all of that out of it. And then what are you left with? Okay. Take whatever you're left with, divide that by the number of hours that you had to work that month and you have your hourly rate. Okay. Don't be surprised if that number is way lower than you want it to be. You know, if you're starting out or if you've been, you know, even like five years in and maybe you have been focused so much on the craft that you haven't been really raising your prices, right? Um, that number is probably going to be too low. I think for many people, it is too low. So how do you end up charging um, in a way that gives you a livable wage, right? Our goal is to help empower women, especially, um, to be very solid business owners so that you have more flexibility and freedom. I personally believe that having choices is the definition of freedom. And having choices in America means um, having financial freedom, okay? So, you know, do that health check and then going forward, you got to think about a few things. Um, you want to think about what is your pricing strategy, number one. I've been really open about what my pricing strategy was when I was a photographer. I went from having your usual three packages to having just one base package. And that, you know, the transition from doing that was a little bit scary, just like any kind of change that you make in your business, especially when you're dealing with pricing, that's a little bit scary to begin with. Cause you're like, oh man, what if I'm underselling myself? Um, but what I actually found was that with the three packages, rarely would anyone book the top one. Most people book the middle one. I think that's true across the board. If anyone's not booking your middle one, you need to adjust your prices. Um, and I found that having those three options put a ceiling on what people were paying me. And you don't want to put a ceiling on what people <laughs> are paying you. Instead, you're putting a floor on what people are paying you. So for me, I changed from three packages to one, only one package. And it's the base package. It's the basics. It's the bare minimum. So mentally speaking, your clients are booking your lowest package if they just go with that. Okay. Um, how did I figure out what number that was going to be? Because in my, in my base package, I have only the essentials for me. That was main photographer and second shooter. I don't want to shoot without a second shooter. That's a no deal for me. Um, an engagement session is included because I have to have an engage engagement session with you. Um, I did allow substitutions like one additional wedding day hour, but only in limited circumstances. And that would be if one of the the bride or the groom or whatever one of the spouses was not in the country and that we couldn't do an engagement session. Um, up to seven hours of wedding day coverage. And then digital download, online gallery, that was it. That is the base package. And so in terms of overhead, not a lot of overhead. My biggest overhead is paying my second shooter. Um, so the how did I price that? Because a lot of it is just profit at that point. Um, I had basically, what is my baseline get out of bed number, right? Um, what is, how much is it going to take for me to not only get out of the bed, mm -hmm. but to like give up my weekend day, break my back, carry mm -hmm. all of my gear, clean my equipment the night before, unload memory cards for a couple of hours afterwards, uh, recharge all my batteries. You know, how much is it worth it to me to do that? Um, that's how I found my number personally. And I found that by having that, most people booked over way over what my top package was when I had three packages. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so that was my pricing strategy, you yeah. know, and, and also like I offered a lot of like all of the a la cartes, like everything was on the a la carte menu because it, number one, it, it anchors what your value is in the base package. And it also 
like you can't buy it if you can't see it, you know? So, you know, I had people book me for hybrid film and that's because I had it available. That was a separate price. That's something that you could do. Um, so think about all of the options and all of the things that you can offer to your clients that even if they're not booking it, you want to do it, you want to sell it, put it on the menu mm-hmm. because they can't book it if they can't see it. Yeah, that's a really good strategy. Um, I'm just thinking too, like if there's anything that you can do, like maybe if you can outsource things so that you have more time to work on other things that are actually going to make you more money. So even though you're, you know, paying somebody to do something, you're, it's actually going to give you a higher return on your investment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. I think you have to be yeah. really strategic about that. Like I know a lot of videographers who do invest in like um, an editor, an outside editor, because editing takes forever. Um, there were services that you can do like, oh, I can't remember them. I never used them, but I know that there were services that you can do where you would pay like 20 cents or something per image to have them edit it for you. Um, but I found those to be global edits anyway, that were pretty easy to do in Lightroom. Um, yeah, you can outsource things, and but you have to think about what's your return on investment, right? Like everything should have a return. Otherwise, it's not a good use of your money. Yeah. Um, personally, for me, if I were to outsource, I would probably hire a brand or media strategist, you know, someone who's better at my weak points, which is social media. Um, editing, I was pretty fast at. I'm still pretty fast at. You know, if you're if you're honing your skills, you don't have to spend too much time editing. Um, but yeah, I think once you get to a place in your business where you can start investing in things that are going to improve your business, you'll start seeing more return. So every time I like leveled up basically in my business, um, every new purchase I had to kind of like justify, how is this going to make me more money right now? How is this different from what I already have in my arsenal? So I, you know, when I bought a medium format camera, which was film, um, I gave myself, I think, six months to really like learn it and then monetize it. And then I did, you know, mm-hmm. um, but you have to have a strategy and think about how is this going to help my business? When I bought my iMac, my big cinema screen iMac, that is, you know, that's a office supply. And still like, I was like, how is this going to make me more money? And, you know, doing the math, I'm like, this is much faster than my laptop. I can see better, better quality photos. Like it, it's, it was justifiable for me. Yeah. I think that's really smart. Yeah. You don't want to just like, when you're starting out, just start spending money on everything that you think you need, because yeah, um, you, you probably don't need it. You can probably find something for free, like a free version or a really low cost version until. Or rent it and see if yeah. it even works for your workflow you know, figure out what does work and what doesn't work for your workflow. Um, yeah, I, I think that everybody's a little bit different. And it, I think that there's a disadvantage for people who are doing this as our side hustle, because you have a day job to kind of fall back on, you know, like how much, I think it it's kind of shocking when you see how much your day job is supplementing your side hustle. Be really honest with yourself. Because, and I'm not saying there's no shame in having a side hustle at all, but I think that you have to be strategic regardless, even if it is your side hustle, you should, you owe it that you owe your business that you owe your clients, your, your hundred percent attention to this, even if it's just your passion project. Mm-hmm. If it is just a passion project, let's say that it, it, it turns out that you're supplementing your business with your pay from your day job you want to talk to your accountant and maybe consider this more of a hobby because there might be tax advantages to that. Um, now is a good time to say that neither of us are tax accountants and um, you should not take any tax advice from us on this episode. Talk to your tax professional about your specific situation in order to assess if it's going to work for you. But I, I you know, um, thinking about your side hustle as potentially a hobby could be a more advantageous um, tax route. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is not really like so much about how do you pay yourself, but, um, 
just just made me think too like I know we've mentioned it before in previous episodes about not only should you be tracking your time but really like be like tracking I think like where you spend your money on you know advertising or things like that make sure um you know that you can see that you're actually getting a return on your investment or not so maybe you know if you're you know paying for any sort of ads or something like that or um like and um certain referral networks mm-hmm. or something yeah if you know if you're not really getting clients from there or the clients always, aren't really paying you enough I always ask you know who can I thank for the referral that's a really good way to figure out where your clients are coming from um I surprisingly found that a lot of people were coming from Instagram and um I think a lot of people can relate to this but for the most part every time every time somebody found me on Instagram and hired me they were fantastic clients. They were like dream clients to work with because they sought me out, right? Mm -hmm. Like they found me, they take ownership over their decision and they loved it. And it was, we just had a lot of fun. And then they would refer me to their friends or their friends would, you know, see me at the wedding working or whatever. And then those people would hire me. Like most of the time, those clients were also wonderful to work with. Not as cool as the first couple, rare Mm -hmm. occasions, cooler. (laughs) um but you know they were great and then the tertiary like the third group out less fun like there's less ownership I definitely was the photographer for like a friend group who (laughs) you know they all got married in succession and I was their photographer for like every single one of them and it was awesome but by the time it got out of the friend group like into the cousins group not awesome and I had to turn down proposals you know So you want to think about, is it better to get referrals from past clients? Um, Are you enjoying working with the people that they're referring, you know, to you? Or does it make more sense to spend your time and money cultivating um, an organic audience from wherever that might be? It's kind of the opposite. Like in my legal business, word of mouth, best friend, my best friend, if you can vouch for somebody and um, like you were referred to me by someone, I will probably 90% likely work with you as a lawyer because there's like this built-in inherent trust. Um, but in the photography world, I did not find that to be true. Yeah, so I think that's, um, you know, a good point. And hmm. look at your Google um, uh, site tracker you know, look at, look at the demographic, who's visiting your website, where are they coming from? What hours are they looking at? What is getting the most views? Is it a blog post? Is it what, is it trending because somebody pinned it on Pinterest and now it's blowing up on Pinterest, you know, figure out what it is, the thing that's working. And it, you know, it's hard to, um, kind of separate the likes from the actual money because likes are not currency. Mm-hmm. You could have a lot of likes on something and it brings you no money. <laughs> if it converts though, like if it converts to having more followers, then that's worth it, you know, because I think that there is a social currency. But likes on one thing that goes viral is not going to be helpful. It's yeah. cool, but you know. Anything else to add, Deanna? I know we kind of jumped over um, or jumped around a little bit. Um, I know you touched on about like pricing strategy, right? About like being transparent. Um, I count for the time of giving up. Yeah, like what will get you out of bed. Um, so if you are, so put yourself in the shoes of your client, right? Like this is an important practice. We talked about this before, but understanding who your client is and understanding where they're coming from. Um, if you are at the beginning stages of getting married, let's say you're not a wedding professional, right? You are somebody who works a regular nine to five job and you're planning a wedding when you're not working, you're a new bride. Um, you have no frame of reference. You don't know why I should like your contacts more, you know, than this other digital photo instead. Um, what would I want to know as a consumer? You know, I see your pictures, they're beautiful. I love them. I've fallen in love with them. 
what am I going to want to know as a busy working professional? I want to know right away, can I afford this? Mm -hmm. Can I afford this? Now, ladies, one basic overarching principle is you always have money and time for the things that you want. Remember that. Anytime a client is trying to haggle with you, just remember you always have money and time for the things that you want. If they really want it, they'll pay full price. Okay. Um, but I want to know if I'm in the ballpark, you know, I don't have a limitless budget and I cannot afford Jose Villa. Okay. So if you're charging Jose Villa prices, I want to know up front. So I'm not wasting my time. Um, I think it's important to have some kind of baseline on your website about what your pricing is. Personally, when I was helping my friends, you know, with their wedding planning before I got into the industry, I hated the websites that did not post starting prices. You know, I'm like, this is, I don't have time to email back and forth with you. Just give me a ballpark. And so if you give your clients a general idea, one really good way to do that, if you're not comfortable putting your pricing out there is to say that pricing starts at this much and the average client spends this much dollars. Okay. That gives your clients a, a good sense of like, you know, okay, your base package is this much, but don't expect to spend only that much. You're mm-hmm. starting there. Okay. Um, but I do feel like people are kind of afraid to put their prices on their website. You know, here's the thing. Um, this is, you know, every this is the whole reason why it's trans, it's a touchy subject. Um putting your prices on your website doesn't make you less competitive. And remember, your the pricing is really also going to be dictated by what the market will bear. So if you're getting booked a lot at your prices currently, you need to probably increase your prices. Um and publishing that on your website is not going to be a bad thing. Okay. Um, if anything, you know, for the people who think that like, um, I want to price this certain way and rule out a certain type of client, you know, maybe a low budget client or whatever. I, I don't know. I always felt like if I'm really good at my job, it doesn't matter what kind of wedding it is. Um, I'm just happy if anyone likes my art, you know, if you really love my work enough and you can scrounge up enough money between family and friends or however you want to pay for me to pay for me to come to your wedding and maybe blew your budget on my, on my services, I am going to work extra hard for you because that's a lot of responsibility, you know? So I, I think that it is a good idea to put your pricing out there and like, state your worth confidently mm-hmm. own it you know i think um, people are very apologetic about what their prices are there's no reason to be this is a luxury industry yeah i think also it, it might just um seem make you seem more um like trust trustworthy um like you're not just uh you know, like looking at someone or whatever, you know, getting a feeling saying, oh, like That's you look true. like you have money. So I'm going to just jack up the price. That's true too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can just like instill some more confidence that, you know, you're charging the same rate to everybody. Yeah. you're being fair across the board. And, and like I said, a lot of my clients were referrals from past clients. And so they know, I know they're talking to each other about like what they paid me, mm-hmm. you know, um, And I was really open with them too. Like, you know, that person got married a year ago or two years ago. The prices have gone up since then. Um, That's what it says on the website too. So, you know, I I never really had pushback like that. And I think the more that I owned my prices and said, yeah, this is normal and this is what it is, didn't bat an eye about it. Clients were very comfortable paying me that much. Um, Price was not a conversation that was... um, you know, too delicate to approach. Yeah. And I think also probably can save you some time too, from people who are just price shopping. Right. Oh, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, you you know, the people who 
you know, there's price shoppers and they're not really looking at your art. They're looking at your price. Right. And you can kind of sense that, like if you're priced, um, you know, maybe you're, you're fine for market rate and you're great, but you are working with somebody with a really high budget and they're price shopping. I've definitely had people like that too. Mm -hmm. I might not want to work with that person. In my experience, probably wouldn't do it again. You know, I would rather be paid my base rate, my minimum for somebody who can scrounge up the money and get gifts from family and friends, than work with someone who pays me more than my base rate and it's easily affordable for them, but they're kind of like, I'm checking off a box of like mm-hmm. list of things that I need to do. Yeah. You know, um, you got to remember why you chose entrepreneurship and why you like want to make your art your work right so yeah you got to go back to that sometimes okay um so how do you grow your money right you want to get from the point where you're no longer like okay at the end of the month I'm gonna here's my profit cool. I can pay myself. I can pay my rent. And then I'm back down to zero. And then I know that I have like three more weddings next month and same thing, right? Like you want to get away from living basically month to month, wedding season to wedding season. Um, Clearly that is the goal. (laughs) And that's why it's so important to have that annual meeting with yourself that we talked about before to check what your hourly rates are, like what you're actually making. What did you do last year? What worked and what didn't work? What cost you too much money and didn't really pay off? Um, which packages have a thinner margin for a profit. A lot of times that top package has a much smaller margin for profit than say your bottom or your middle. So evaluate that. Um, But you want to grow your money. Um, You want to think about how you can make passive income. Of course, that's like the goal, right? Um, Before we talk about doing that though, you need to watch out for a few things. You want to watch out for anything that's being marketed to you on Instagram as like, here's how I did it. And it was so easy. Let me just share with you the ways, you know, like you're going to make this much money. Or um, I went from having, you know, my successful, my uber successful floral business, and I'm going to teach you how to do it, blah, blah, blah. Like a lot of times that you're, um, if you're paying for it, that's probably how they're making their money. Okay. So just be careful of that. I've seen some things on Instagram that are like, um, in investing for women an investing course for women, be careful, be careful. I see scams like this all the time, all the time, every day. (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of like really bad ways, um, to lose your money. Okay. So investing it wisely, you want to think about what you already know, right? Like you want to trust your expertise. Like I know someone who, um, they are really phenomenal at flash photography and, um, you know, that's their jam. That's kind of their signature style. And that person, you know, created a, uh, like, a thing um like hardware to help you edit in Lightroom faster and um I think they were also launching some kind of like lighting thing um but yeah you want to think about the things that you already know how to do and like what you're good at and that doesn't mean that you have to create a project a product or another service but if there's like opportunities to like invest in something that already exists um or that is going to go to market in an area that you're familiar with, that might be something that's worth investing your time into and money to see some returns. Yeah, I think like, I know we talked about too for like passive income, um, I think going to what you said about something you're really good in. So if you already, um, you know, are an expert at something or you have like a huge following, then maybe you could do things like um, like a print shop um, or like, um, actually have a workshop, but like, because you're actually like, you know, already have a good reputation and people know, like you really are skilled at that. So they will sign up. Um, like offer, 
yeah, like if you offer a workshop, make sure you're delivering on what your workshop is yeah. going to be about, you know, so that, so not a, like how I built my business kind of workshop, but more like I'm a floral designer and I'm going to have a floral workshop for mother's day, come sip mimosas and build awesome arrangements with me. That really works when you have a large following, because, you know, if you think about the cost of doing it, it it's going to be high up front, right? Um, you have to pay for all of the flowers, as well as um, any of the tools that you need to use and, and give away to your participants. So you absorb the cost up front, which is high. Um, and if you have a larger following, the more likely you are to have people who will actually attend and sell out. Um, about the print shop, you know, some options for people who are, uh, photographers, society six is a really reputable place. Um, they take 10% of your sales, but they do a lot of the logistics for you. Um, I know that what's the other one minted minted has contests for artists and that's through community voting to see um who's going to be in that like round of of artists um but yeah i mean if you're a photographer you want to think about how you can make passive income income with your prints with like no people in it because you don't probably don't want to sell people pictures of people in it and for the most part most people don't want to buy pictures of like other people they don't know you know so think about that when you're traveling too if you are a floral designer and you have a studio um, or you have a floral shop, think about how you can use that space. Space, a brick and mortar has a lot of value. You know, that's something that many small business owners don't have. Um, that could be really, really good to make passive income on when you're closed. So, you know, for example, if you're a floral shop, you could hold pop-ups right or you could have um one of those workshops that we mentioned hosted at your location instead and they just pay you a venue fee yep and um i know something else that we kind of touched on before is we're saying about um you know nowadays you can actually get um interest on your bank account um i know personally i have um, a marcus account it's with um, goldman sachs it's an online bank and i think the interest rate for the savings is around like three and a half or four percent. And yeah. if you refer people, you get like a um one percent higher for a few months. Cool. So it's a good way to just, you know, do do nothing and make some more money. Yeah, that's true passive income. Um, if you watch the the Warren Buffett documentary on HBO, you should watch it. That's like how everything started for him was just interest. Um, but yeah, I do agree. Having a high yield interest rate is a must. Must, must. Um, oh, in the beginning. So let's say you don't have a million dollars like Warren <laughs> start out in investing so that your interest grows at a phenomenal rate. Um, in the beginning, trade services. You know, think about trading services with someone who is at the same skill level as you or in the same place in their business. And that could be trading logo or website design for updated headshots, you know? It's good cross exposure. It doesn't cost you anything. It just costs time. Obviously over time, as you increase your business and your reputation, you're not gonna need to do trades anymore. Um, and you're gonna wanna be paid for the work that you do. Um, your landlord is not going to accept headshots for rent. Okay. Um, but in the beginning, I think it's a, a really good way to save money in your business and not go into debt. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, something else could be um, maybe starting like a subscription service. Um, you know, like Desiree keeps saying, this is a luxury business. So, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, think about um, the things that you might subscribe to yourself. And is, you know, if you're still subscribing to it, there's a good chance that it's a luxury that you find very valuable. Spotify. Do I need Spotify? Mm -hmm. No. 
but I have it. Um, Lashify is probably my most guilty subscription, my most <laughs> guilty pleasure subscription. I have a subscription to Lashify and even with spacing it out every two months, I'm still kind of like, you know, I'm like, I should cancel. And then I put my new lashes on. I'm like, nope, I'm never going to yeah. cancel. I'm going to keep on. Yeah. <laughs> I used to do one of those like makeup subscriptions. Oh I, yeah. I don't remember what it's called, but uh, yeah. That was I stayed nice. away from those. I managed yeah. to not do one of those. <laughs> Um, because I would totally be a hoarder, but the Lashify subscription is yeah. my favorite. <laughs> and I, you know, Deanna, I actually did the math and I'm like, the return on investment that I get from these lashes is worth it because when I'm wearing them, I don't do a lot of my makeup at all. I could just go mm-hmm. pretty barefaced or do very little and I feel fine, like yeah. presentable, you know? So I think that it's worth it, but it's absolutely 100% a luxury. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> a but... completely unnecessary luxury that my <laughs> husband has not noticed yet. Um, but how do you incorporate a subscription service into your business? Let me give you some ideas. Um, a long, long, long time ago, before subscriptions were the thing, um, I remember Carolyn Tran had um, an early subscription type of service that she offered to people with their families, right? It wasn't known as a subscription back then, but what it was, was the Puddle Jumpers membership or club or whatever you want to call it. And essentially what the parents can do is, you know, you do the newborn photos with her and you can choose to have, you know, a three month, six month, nine month, 12 month, whatever um, type package. And that means that you come back at those markers and get your photos done. And then at the end of it, you get an album of like all of the, uh, the each of interval. Um, and that was a really good way to ensure that there was business coming in, um, reliable business every month or every whatever you want to call it. Um, I know that there are floral subscriptions that I think are really, really cool. That's definitely a luxury, but it's one of those fun luxuries that's like, you feel so good every time you get it, you know, like bark box. That's another thing. My brother got us a bark box. I would not pay for that. It's very expensive, <laughs> but um, it's fun. I get a bark yeah. box for Penny and I'm very excited for her. And it's one of those things that I'm like, I'm kind of glad that he got it. Yeah. It doesn't like getting packages in the mail. Yeah. yeah. But you want to be strategic too about what you're getting. Like I wish Lashify <laughs> give me a little bit more perks because I spend so much money with them. But I remember one time they sent me some like extra wandums, you know, like these little cushions for your tweezers. And those were like a $15 value or something. But I was like, oh, thank you. That's so convenient. Like I really needed more Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to order them. So thank you so much for sending them, you know, to them, it cost them like nothing. Those were, I'm sure like pennies for them to get from the manufacturer. But to me, it's, um, very worth it. You know, it it felt like a nice gesture. So you can incorporate something that says like a little thank you to your, your clients for just remind them why the subscription is worth it. Um, that could be like every third one, you send them a box of chocolates with their flowers, or you give them, you know, every year, maybe on their birthday, they, they get a bouquet and they get to pick a recipient for another bouquet, you know? So find, you know, it's an opportunity to be creative in a different way. Um, so yeah, I, I I like that idea a lot. And I'm trying to think of like how that would look for contracts or how that would go for on, ongoing business. But, you know, I think that having like an evergreen type of service is um, something that would be very, very helpful for many people to kind of transition from like, the season to season kind of paycheck to a more consistent building of look. Um, yeah. And I think we already talked about like uh, not flying for scams, no bait and switch workshops. No, um, you know, there was somebody before who was doing a watercolor workshop and they, you know, really wanted people to sign up for it. And they said that um, on this day, we're going to have a free, I'm doing a free seminar and we're going to cover these three topics or whatever. And she did, you know, she covered like 
uh, like here's how I um, map out like the size, the proportions for bodies or whatever. So she would do that, but then like give you the the base introduction of it and then say, learn the rest of it in my full course, you know? Hmm. And it just <laughs> felt like, like I get it. Like I know nothing is really for free, but it felt like a bait and switch. And to me that kind of, it felt um, untrustworthy. It's the, the opposite of transparency, right? And I felt like that was kind of a waste of my time. And not that I didn't learn anything, I did, but the the constant reminder of like, you can learn more detracted from the value of what she was really offering. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. sound good. <laughs> yeah. Too like salesy. Yeah. yeah too salesy. Yeah. I would say though, in, in my, when I was doing my law firm, like I never pitched, like I never sold anything to anyone. It was more like, here are my prices. Here's how I do things. Take it or leave it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, you decide I'm not going to pressure you because we can't, we, we ethically speaking, we would not pressure clients to sign up with us as a lawyer. Yeah. Um, and I found that it, it was never a problem. If anything, I, it was like more me turning down business because I was overbooked. Um, and that's just coming from being fully transparent. So I hope that this episode was helpful. Um, let us know if you want to learn more about money and if you want to learn any specific topics about money, because I'm always, always, always happy to talk candidly about money. You know, the world runs on money, so you better know how it works. Um, cool. Yeah. All right. We'll catch you guys in the next episode. Bye. And before we go, there's a few things you should know. Founders Vegas for educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. Always consult an attorney licensed in your state if you need legal help. In some states like California, this podcast may be considered attorney advertising.